So I think we've talked, we, we talked in the first hour about some of the, the big challenges, kind of unique challenges of strawberries. One is the frost in the spring. One is the rain, which, you know, springs tend to be rainy, and that's right when your fruit is developing. And then the third one, which is kind of, well, it's very much related to the rain, is the, the disease issues. And then fourth is pests, right? Yeah. So, so we're just going to go through those in particular and give a little more um, detail and thoughts. Again, I would refer you to the handout that I have done. Um, and I think Barry actually has some handouts he's going to be giving out here. The one we start the third session. Yeah. yeah. But in there, it's got links to, um, in our part of the country, North Carolina State University has done a lot of the pioneering research on these methods. Because, you know, basically they took what was being done in California and Florida and adapted it for the southeast, you know, for Carolinas, Tennessee, Georgia, and everything. So anyway, there's links in the handout to articles that go into like frost protection in depth, you know, way more than we can do here. So look at that up. And it's interesting with frost protection, just to comment that, uh, you know, it's, it's strange to me that John is fighting frost so much and uh, spraying his berries in Tennessee and in Minnesota where I'm growing. I've, I've grown six seasons and we've never ever sprayed our strawberries for frost. And it's for several reasons. We're, we're starting later with the matted row system. I'm uncovering those as late as possible to prevent them from blossoming so early. And then I never grow early varieties. I'm scared of them. But I did plant some last year, so we're going to find out. But, and so uh, I've, I've never, uh, we've covered our strawberries once for frost, and it still froze them. I mean, it got down to 28 or something, 26, and it, it still froze them, but we still got a, a pretty good production that year in spite of it. It just got a lot of the kingberries. But it's just interesting that because of the uh, plastic culture he's using, he's getting strawberries much, much earlier and fighting frost with it more than we are in Minnesota with the matted row system farming them late. Just kind of a enigma. But again, that, that brings up the point that, um, you know, if, if you're not worried about them shutting down from the heat, yeah, you can get later bearing varieties. You can do things to cause them to bear later. So it's, it's a double-edged sword. That's the bottom line with, with plastic culture. You're trying to get them to bear earlier. I will say that we're very much in a frost pocket which, you know, that's where your best soil is, and we, that's where we have gravity flow water. So we chose that knowing that we were going to have to deal with frost more than if we were on a hill, 
you know, we would probably have to frost protect half as much. Another interesting thing about the frost protection is just that our farm uh, is located on a very slight north slope. And so we're behind most of the strawberry growers in our area by two to three days every single year. And I think our plants are getting going a little bit later, and so that also delays us and, and causes us to have less frost problem. Another thing that we're going to try this year, because we planted early varieties, we, we planted a variety called Wendy, and that's very, very early. And so it could be a week or two ahead of our other jewel variety. And what I was just talking to a, somebody I buy some organic fertilizers from, and they have a product that you can spray. I have a sprayer, and we spray foliar on all of the leaves of the uh, field. And in the spring, after you uncover, they're just fighting using all the nitrogen they can to grow. And so you spray them with potassium. And I was just talking to the rep today, and he said that will gain you three to five degrees of protection by spraying them a day ahead of time with potassium. And then they, they get off of that nitrogen kick or nitrogen high they're on and slows them down a little bit and so the frost doesn't hurt them as much. So that could gain you three to five degrees, and, and row cover maybe, depending on how thick it is, could save you maybe two to four degrees. So there are other methods than spraying. We've always been a little afraid of the spraying just because, like you said, what if the sprayer quits in the middle of the night, your crop's done? And so uh, those are the challenges. So. So just quickly, if anyone wants to try to use irrigation for frost protection, and this can be for other things besides strawberries, we actually did it on our blueberries this year, which I'm not sure how helpful it was. But anyway, Senninger wobblers are what I recommend for frost protection, not only for frost protection, but just as a general sprinkler, garden sprinkler. They're cheap, um, they're very uniform, and they don't freeze up like, you know, traditionally big strawberry farms, they use rain birds, and they have to walk the fields all night when they're frost protecting, knocking the ice off the rain birds. And with the wobblers, we would just get up every hour. So, <laughs> so we, we gambled a little bit, but it makes for a very long night, I'm telling you, especially about the third night. It's like, are we sure we want to grow strawberries? But the, the Senninger wobbler sprinkler heads are plastic, and they don't build up the ice like a metal rainbird does. So I would highly recommend those. I know a grower in our area who protected, you, who protected her strawberries through a 17-degree freeze, which most people would never recommend you trying to do that. But she did it with wobbler sprinklers. But just, well, again, most of you are not looking at commercial, but 
you know, you're talking about 45 to 60 gallons a minute to, to frost protect one acre of strawberries. So you have to have a lot of water when you're going for hours and hours. Um, okay, and then floating row covers. I think we talked about this. We, we use a one ounce per square yard cover. And I think, if I remember correctly, it's rated for three to five degrees. Um, but the neat thing that you can do, and this is one of the, the benefits that we've found in the last few years, we've, we've, made, we've standardized all our plot sizes. So we grow on basically 30 by 100 foot plots. And it's very easy to put row covers on a 30 by 100 foot plot. But when you're putting it on a 300-foot field, um, putting row covers on is um, a test of your Christian experience. <laughs> because usually you're putting them on when there's a, a cold front coming through, and so it tends to be breezy, and it's not easy. So anyway, uh, just an advantage of small plots. But the other thing with the small plots is that we can easily double or triple cover them. And every additional row cover you put on is trapping air between those layers. And you can protect, I mean, with three layers of row cover, you can protect most anything. I mean, I, I guess I should be careful what I say, but um, you're going to be hard-pressed to, to freeze your, your strawberry flowers with three layers of row cover on there. So that's a simple solution, especially on a home scale. Just have enough row cover to double or triple cover your, your plants, and you should be good to go. Now, ideally, you have a thermometer under the row cover and, and growers, you know, have these electronic thermometers with probes. And so they can go around their field and be monitoring the temperature under the row cover. Because otherwise, you're just kind of guessing. Um, but again, you know, for, for home scale, just always err on the side of you're not going to hurt the plant overnight by putting on three layers of row cover. So just err on the side of caution. Does that make sense? Any, um, uh, any other comments on frost? No, I'm ready to move on to rain. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> this is kind of a bad picture, but it's the only... This was actually after we had had a, a bad windstorm that came through and really kind of bent up our caterpillar tunnel. Um, so I guess I'll just go through some things we do for rain protection and then you can do go through yours. So again, the raised plastic covered beds in and of themselves are rain protection because it's keeping the plants up and it's um, keeping excess water 
from the plants. So that, in effect, is, is rain protection. And then, of course, having individual plants with airflow and sunshine around each plant, the plants will dry out quicker after a rain or whatever. And so, you know, that's what you're wanting. You're wanting to encourage an environment where the plants are as dry as possible. So, again, I talked some about spraying organic fungicide. Um, these are ones we have used. Oxidate, which is a hydrogen, um, I think it's actually hydrogen dioxide, but I think it's pretty similar to hydrogen peroxide. Yes. Hydrogen dioxide is a more fancy name of hydrogen peroxide. Okay, well, that's good to know. The more expensive name, too, I think. is So Oxidate is, is a hydrogen peroxide-based spray. Serenade is a um, some kind of beneficial bacteria. I don't remember exactly the name or, or anything, but... But again, it's, it's, it's um, working in, in that kind of way. Trilogy is actually a neem-based spray, and somebody was just sharing with me that they've seen some, some um, harmful effects on, on soil life with spraying neem. So I don't know. I haven't actually used Trilogy in quite a few years, so... You may want to be careful with that. Double nickel is another one that, again, is, is some kind of uh, strain of bacteria that attacks certain pathogenic organisms. Um, and then this is something we've been experimenting with over the last couple of years, and we're actually quite excited about it. Um, a lot of people have tried growing strawberries in greenhouses. You know, it's like, okay, if rain and frost are a big issue, it makes a lot of sense to grow them in a greenhouse. But there's a couple downsides that people have found. We've, we've experimented with it. We've found it, and I've heard it from others. So it's not just us. Number one is just the reality that you're tying up your greenhouse all winter with something that's not even going to be ripe until spring. So it doesn't seem like the best use of very prime real estate. But secondly, greenhouse environment seems to really um, encourage the growth of the spider mites. Do you deal with spider mites? Not much problem with those. Pretty much anybody I've ever known, and I'm seeing some nodding heads back there, pretty much anybody I've ever known that's grown strawberries in um, greenhouse or hoop houses has had major spider mite infestations. So for those reasons, among others, we have, we have not grown them in our hoop houses, but we've come up with this. You all are familiar with caterpillar tunnels? Maybe. In fact, I think 
is it this evening maybe they're putting one up out here during booth time so you can see it for yourself but basically it's a low cost hoop house that can be put up and taken down relatively um, easily so sometime in march well early march ideally we just erect caterpillar tunnels over right now it's only a third of our plants but that gives us some insurance keeps the rain off it actually even without any ends on the tunnel they produce almost a week earlier than those that are outside so it's it's uh it's a nice solution and you're not having to spray anything or any of that and then somebody was asking me about about some shade cloth we haven't done this yet but we want to try that this this spring you know you put shade cloth over it and i think actually we could take our berries in the caterpillar tunnel longer into the summer than those outside so we've got a comment back here i'm gonna let you comment even though I'm not supposed to. Oh, well, now go ahead. Um, I know it's going to be good. Okay, do you do frost protection in the tunnels? We, yeah, we, we, um, we still use row covers in there. Yeah. Okay, I think, oops, yeah. That's all I have for rain protection. Well, for rain, uh, I know it was in 2019, it was a wet year. I mean, we had, we had probably one of our best crops ever. I remember that the, the, at one morning, uh, I had a lady and her daughter, they picked 11 flats of strawberries in two hours, just the two of them. And just as they were done picking, it started raining. We got seven inches of rain. And that was, you can imagine, was just devastating to the crop, to the bridges in the area too, actually. It closed bridges on three different washed out bridges and nobody could get to our farm to pick. And so we had all these ripe berries and uh, nobody coming to pick. It was not a good situation. You can imagine quite a few of them rotted in the field. So, but it was amazing that because we have about maybe a two-degree slope on our fields, our strawberry fields, that water ran off. We were picking the next day, so we didn't have standing water. A friend of mine has about six acres of strawberries, and uh, he had one area that was a little more like a bowl, and that was completely finished. So when you choose your strawberry area, if you have just a little slope, it'll drain. And that's significant. People could hardly believe we would pick the next day after a seven-inch rain. But because of all the straw between the rows, the straw was damp, but there was no mud. And so people could get right in there and pick if they wanted to come. So, uh, and because of that, too, we have not had as much of the fungus. I've not had a huge problem with fungus through the years because of rain. But we do get some diseases, and we're going to get to that. Uh, one problem I have is the rain that comes is hard water. It's called hail. You know, the hard water is really hard on strawberries. When you pit up a, 
a hailstone against a strawberry, the hailstone wins every single time. And uh, what it will do is just leave bruises on your strawberries, even the green ones, if you get enough hail. But uh, bruises the strawberries, and it makes it very difficult to sell them. And it'll shred your leaves. But, you know, this is kind of one of those things that a lot of these things are out of our control. And I can remember last year we had one night. It hailed four different times in one night on our farm. And every time my wife and I were praying, Lord, stop the hail. And so uh, in the next morning, I remember going out into the field, and I could see some of the leaves shredded, but there was not one bit of damage on the strawberries. You know, and we knew, I can remember taking my shoes off and praying and saying, Lord, your angels were out here in the night in this field. And so that's what I, I think that we can talk about all the fungicides and all kinds of problems and challenges, but I'm telling you, prayer goes a long way, he says, you know. It's bigger than any of these things. And we pray a lot about our strawberries, as I know John does, and Pam. But uh, so hail has been a problem. One year, I think I lost uh, half of my crop due to hail. But uh, it was amazing. One of my varieties came through pretty well. And uh, it's the jewel variety that I grow a lot of. And it, my other varieties were finished. But the jewel variety came through. So uh, hail has been a bit of a problem for us. Maybe we can talk about disease next. That's okay. Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment on the prayer because certainly we don't ever want to underestimate the power of prayer. God is a miracle-working God. Um, our experience, with, with very, very few exceptions, is God asks us to do all we know to do. Amen. And then we leave the rest with him. And so there's many, many situations where we knew that what we could do was not enough, but we do everything we know to do, and then we can go sleep knowing that it's all in the Lord's hands. Amen. And many times he's performed miracles, not all the time. Yeah. You know, he knows what we need. And he gives us exactly what we need. Okay. This is a, a slide I don't like to look at because it, it gives me bad feelings in my stomach. As John and I compared notes getting ready for this talk, we were talking about do we have pictures of the disease and weeds and stuff? We have very few pictures of the challenges because we don't like to think about them too much. So I'm going to give Barry a, a quiz here. Let's see how he does. He's been growing strawberries for six years now. Do Well, I'm sure some of you know what these things are, but Barry, what's the top left? Well, that looks like a nice case of gray mold. Okay, he's correct. One for one. I've heard people say, if you have strawberries you will have gray mold or the the uh, proper name is botrytis 
Sonera or something like that. Botrytis. It's anytime you have wet berries, you're going to have botrytis. And the more wet you have, the more botrytis you're going to have. And I'll just relate a story, and it kind of goes back to this dirty dozen thing that John mentioned earlier. And I had another grower come to my farm and visit me, and we had, there was a little bit of gray mold in one of my varieties that had been wet. And, you know, what he said was, uh, spray it with this and this, and uh, uh, it doesn't leave any trace that anybody can see and nobody will ever know the difference that you sprayed this because, you know, we're going to be picking these berries the next day. Just spray them. It'll knock that gray mold right out. And, of course, we never, ever spray our strawberries. But just so you know, when you're, where the strawberries, if you buy them in the store, you know that uh, you don't get to ask them those questions. Yeah, I used to go to strawberry conventions when we were just learning, and unfortunately there weren't any organic strawberry conventions, especially in our part of the country. Um, and I, I don't want to be knocking conventional growers because there are some very um, upstanding conventional growers with integrity, but I did leave those conventions feeling that there was a certain amount of this attitude, what the customer doesn't know won't hurt them. Um, so just, you know, buyer beware. When you buy strawberries in the store, if they're not organic, they're going to be almost guaranteed to be heavily doused with fungicide. And that's the neat thing, to have all these people coming, and many of them are home gardeners, to grow their own strawberries and know what they're getting exactly. exactly. And uh, I'm just really pleased with that. Okay, Barry, what about the top right? That is a particularly ugly picture. Yeah, the spots there, those dark spots on the strawberries, that would be the anthracnose. Uh, disease. And that that's like for a strawberry grower, I, I think that's their worst nightmare is to see that in the fields. The children's, I was sharing, that I, it was two years ago, right? You basically lost your crop to anthracnose. Yeah, somebody was asking me in the break, you know, why don't you keep them for more than one year? Well, this picture right there is the main reason we don't keep them more than one year because there are native host plants that will host anthracnose and Chandler strawberries are very susceptible to anthracnose. So if you carry them over, and now a home gardener, I, I have people say, well, you know, what, what about it? I say, well, you can try. As long as you're willing to lose your crop, you know, it's a gamble. You may, it may do fine, it may not. But the thing about anthracnose is it spreads so quickly. If the weather's warm and wet, within days, I mean, literally two days, it can go through your whole fields. 
it, it's just, it's horrible. I, we've had it, and we know. So it's, it's something that you want to avoid. Okay, what about um, the bottom right? That one may be a little harder. If my daughter was here, she could smell it even on a picture. She has a nose for leather rot. And uh, when there's, she can take a basket or a pail, our pickers pick into pails, and if there's a, one leather rot in there, she can smell it. Wow. It's just amazing. And, and uh, I'm terrible at it. I'm the opposite. I can't smell them for anything. But, but they're really stinky, and one leather rot will spoil a whole jam, a jar, if it, or jam, jar of jam if it gets in there. It'll just ruin things, and it tastes horrible. I think that's what happens when the berries get submerged. Yeah. I was saying how bad they are, and I think it may be have to do with leather rot. But that's another, we don't have that one so much. And fortunately, we have not had anthracnose. We, our, our year was 2003 when our crop was wiped out pretty much between rain and we had the same experience the bridges were washed out or underwater nobody could even get to our farm it was it was yeah it was one of those experiences that i can still get choked up about um so anyway fortunately we haven't had to deal with anthracnose well we had it the next year too two years in a row but we haven't had it since then, at least on any kind of scale. Botrytis, you're always going to deal with. Leather rot, again, I mean, these are all, it's all about moisture. So the more moisture you can keep off, the better. And then what about, I don't know, I don't hear you talk about this one, the bottom left. You know I don't what recognize that is? it. That's, this is actually the one we've had the most issue with. Um, because it comes in on our plants from Canada. It's, it's called angular leaf spot. And especially we found when we were irrigating for frost protection in the spring, we were just spreading that. And you can see that it, it attacks the, um, the calyx, which is the green part on the top of the berry. And it, it kills that, which... You know, if that's all it did, it's, it just makes the berries not look as nice. You know, but the problem is it can then go the next step and it starts rotting out right under the calyx. So you haven't had issues with angular leaf spot. So that's the one that we have dealt with probably more than any other. But again, you know, no simple solutions, but... The goal is to keep the berries as dry as possible. Yeah, if you can keep them up higher, as John's got them in raised beds. And for ours, by the time we cultivate and plant in a row, that row ends up being a little higher than it is between the rows. So the water kind of drains off. And then for us, having that 2% slope on the field helps, and we never plant in a low spot because that's just uh, you're going to get rain that's the kiss of death for those berries. I'm trying to remember when does our, how long do we have here? 
until we're supposed to have another break. 3.45, okay. I'm thinking maybe should we just take a few questions like on disease? So we've gone over frost and rain and this is disease. Well, let's just, we'll just finish and then we'll have time for questions. Okay, pest protection. Now, again, it's interesting. Barry and I have different issues here. Our biggest pest by far is deer. And so I just want to tell you what we do, and we've been very, very happy and satisfied with. And let me just say this. When we started out, we tried all the, the home remedies. You know, they talk about hanging up soap and hair and blood and, you know, mountain lion urine. And <laughs> I mean, you've heard them all, right? Deer are smart. I mean, any of those work for like two nights at max. And then they're like, wait a minute. There's nobody out here. It's just hair hanging up. Um, so, yeah, they may be very, very short-term solutions. We even got this special thing that did a mountain lion scream, you know, every 15 minutes. Um, and the first night I went out and I saw where a deer had just jerked, you know, and jumped the other way, scared to death. Then, you know, the second night it's like, you know what? I'm not even sure there's mountain lions around here. <laughs> I think this is a trick. So the only thing that I know that works effectively is a fence. Now, there's multiple kinds of fences. We have found that this, um, the trade name is 10X Cintiflex. It's a seven and a half foot tall black mesh fencing. Has worked 100% of the time. Now I have talked to at, at one of these, well just last year I think, somebody told me that they'd had deer jump it. We've never had that. Now, technically, deer could jump it because they can jump that high. But because it's hard for them to see, some, some companies call it invisible deer fence. You can hardly see it in the picture there, right? Um, the deer don't seem to be able to judge the depth or height. And they're, they're like, you know, they're not sure what to do with it. And it seems to really be very effective. So this is what we do. We have eight-foot T-posts every 25 feet. We, and I have some more close-up pictures for this here in just a minute. Yellow electric fence insulators on top of each post. Then you just hang the fence from the insulators and then drape it out on the ground. Because deer can theoretically go under a fence. But with it draped out, you know, if they tried to go under, it would stop them. It's worked amazingly for us. And the beauty of it is, you know, the, the challenge with permanent fencing is maintaining it. You know, if you're not, I mean, of course, most people just spray Roundup around their fence. But you're not wanting to do that. So you've got to weed eat around it or something. It's a lot of work. 
But with this, you just go around and lift the fence up and hang it from the insulator on the top. You can mow under it, weed eat under it, then just put it back down. So we just, fen we just fence those plots that we know the things the deer like to eat, strawberries, green beans, or any kind of bean, um, carrots, uh, beets, anything in the beet, spinach, Swiss chard family, um, sweet potatoes. You know, certain crops over the years we've discovered, okay, this is what the deer like. Here's some more close-up pictures. So at the corner, I don't know how well you can see these. At the corner, we just put a couple insulators, and that's our door. We just hook it, and when we want to go in, we just unhook the bottom and slide in there. Up at the top, you see a close-up of the fence insulator, and then at the bottom, you can see how it just drapes out on the ground. You know, like I said, these are 30 by 100 foot plots. It takes, you know, I don't know, half an hour to put up the fence or something. It's not a big job. 12 T-posts, put up the whole fence, just roll it out and hang it up. It's worked amazing for us. That sounds like a great solution. But on three acres, that's a lot of fencing to put up and down. Well, I was admiring a, a herd of 30 deer that's grazing in the alfalfa across from our field just uh, the other day. And I'm afraid they're going to develop a taste for strawberries. They come in in the winter and try to rake the straw off of our strawberries and eat them because they know there's something green under there to eat. And so it is a challenge, deer are a challenge. I think I'm going to try John's fence this next year. My wife does have a, not a cougar yell, but she has a certain scream she can put out that, <laughs> that hair, the hair goes up on their neck and they run. But you know, after even a week of that, almost every day, they get used to that and they're, they're okay with it. <laughs> they just say, oh, that's Mary Beth again. Dogs can work, but dogs tied up don't work because the, the deer learn the length of their rope and they'll just go around them. So if you have a good dog breed, a good guard dog or something, that is quite effective, but not 100% effective because dogs sleep too sometimes. <laughs> Yes, so let's see. Okay, got another quiz here. Um, so these are, so deer are the main big pests, although the, the thing is every year is different, you know, and we had one year where we had a really weird spring because we had a super late hard frost um, that killed all the the, the, you know, the leaves on the trees were big. It killed them all. And we had a second fall in the spring. And then it was like it turned all of nature upside down. And it's the only time this has ever happened, but we had big flocks of cedar waxwings come Ooh. into our fields. And, you know, I thought it was just us. But come to find out, all the way from Carolina all the way, we have a grower 
uh, a Mennonite grower an hour from us. He said he was shooting them, and his kids were taking the cedar wax wings out of the field in five-gallon buckets. And he finally gave up because he couldn't, you know, I guess it was costing too much to shoot them or running out of ammunition or something. Um, and for like two weeks, we didn't have a red berry in the field. And then they left. And we ended up still having a few strawberries, but just weird, you know, one time. I don't know if you've had pests like that. Well, uh, the one that we get that was probably one of the most devastating we've had is flower thrips are on the upper right. They're, they're very, very small. You can hardly see them, but I had as many as 20 on every flower cluster, and they were just destroying. We, they wiped out about half my crop, and it, uh, it was the same year we got the hail, so maybe it didn't matter so much. But anyway... Uh, and I, I think I know why John doesn't get so much of them as a problem. What happens for us when we get a super strong wind in the, su in the spring, there are billions of flower thrips coming in that wind, and they drop on the fields. And that's where we get our flower thrips. So I think, are you sending them up? or They just seem to come up. Anyway, they come on the winds. And uh, that's where we get our flower thrips. But they, Is that a south wind? Or? From the south, yeah. Okay. And so, uh, you know, I suppose conventional uh, folks would just be spraying, and I think you can get some organic sprays for it, but I, it's, it's a challenge. And uh, just don't like that super strong south wind coming in. So... Do you, do you have the other bug up on top there? It's kind of The hard tarnished to plant bug? No, we've the, got another slide for that. Oh, okay. They're tiny, tiny little black bugs. Oh, go ahead. I don't recognize those. That's a sap beetle. We get those towards the end of the season, and especially any fruit that's overripe. So you have, that's a good reason to really be careful in your picking because they will just start eating a hole in the berry and, um, you know, over time, the hole, and I'm sure there's some microorganisms that help. It just kind of becomes a, just something you wouldn't want to eat. Um, so, again, the, the solution that I know of with, with sap beetles is just try to, to pick thoroughly. Don't leave anything overripe. And, again, it's, it's towards the end of the season. And then the bottom two pictures there, one, the picture with the arrows. Do you see little maggots? It's not something you want your customers to see, right? Um, how many of you have heard of the spotted wing Drosophila? A few. Um, if you haven't heard of it, you're probably better off not knowing about it. Because anyway, it's it's a a pretty major pest that has come into the U.S. in the last, what, 15 years or something? Right, imported. 
I think. Imported pests that, you know, you remember in high school biology, Drosophila, what's Drosophila? Just a, a fruit fly. But the thing that makes the spotted wing Drosophila so much of a menace is usually fruit flies lay their eggs in overripe fruit. But the spotted wing Drosophila lays its egg in green fruit. And so as the larva is hatching and starting to feed, the fruit is ripening. And I've heard horror stories. They're, they're particularly bad with raspberries. But I've heard horror stories of people going to the farmer's market and coming home with this pint of raspberries. And the next morning, it's writhing with all these little maggots. Yeah, that's bad for business. Um, most, I'm convinced most people are eating them and not even knowing they're eating them, especially on blueberries. That's why I was saying you're better off not even knowing about them because now you're not going to want to eat blueberries. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. And they get worse through the summer. So again, by having the strawberries early, we don't normally have an issue except maybe towards the end of the season. You'll start noticing little soft spots on the berries. Yeah, on the side of the berry, you'll just feel a soft area, maybe even around the whole berry. We don't get them until the very end of the season. Uh, we wouldn't grow late season strawberries because of this uh, pest. But very late in the season, we feel those soft sides, and you break open the berry, and you'll find these uh, little maggots inside of there. And I think we found our first one a year ago. We found our first one on a Friday, and by Sunday, it was pretty much through the field, and the season was over. <laughs> that was it. And we had picked most of the berries anyway. It's very, very end of the season for us. So we're fortunately on the right side of the the time where those little things come out. But many of the raspberry growers in our area have just stopped growing raspberry because it's too discouraging. They especially can't solve the problem. The fall-bearing raspberries especially, but probably even summer-bearing. Yeah, even the summer berries. And the conventional farmers, I think, just spray every couple of days for these insecticide right on their berries. And that's that's how they would take care of it. But... Uh, Again, you just, again, so what are we saying? You know, you might want earlier varieties to avoid it and uh, be aware. Know what your pests are. When is their season? If you know them, it's a lot easier to defeat them. Mm. So we know the timing, so we're not going to grow berries that ripen during that time period. And so, again, with most of these pests, we don't want to make it so that you look at this and say, there's no way I'd grow strawberries. Look at all these problems. You know, just be aware of your pests, how you can best defeat them, and that's, that's the best answer. Some people have tried things like putting uh, coverings over their fields at that time of the year, but it's, uh, it's <laughs> nearly hopeless to think of that. You just have to plan around them. One thing I've heard with SWD, that's, that's its uh, nickname, spotted wing Drosophila, um, is hummingbird feeders. 
and I, you know, I haven't confirmed this myself, but I have heard that hummingbirds eat the SWD. So if you hang feeders out in your field, um, and they do this with blueberries, you know, that encourages the hummingbirds to come around there. So that's one thing you might try. Um, but yeah, you kind of have to pick your poison, either go earlier bearing and deal with frost or later bearing and deal with maggots. Okay, one more here, Barry, this is for you. Well, I recognize these tarnished plant bugs, but not very much because only the nymphs at the bottom, those are the ones who get on the flowers usually. I don't see very, so many adults in our field as these nymphs mostly. And you end up with these little cat face uh, strawberries, which aren't very fun to eat because the, the end is kind of crunchy and, you know, it's just not attractive. And it really just spoils your berries. But they're into your, it's not that the berries they're ruining, it's the blossoms that they're yeah, you, chewing on. You see the top picture, they're, they're eating on that blossom, which is, is what disfigures the fruit. And again, you can avoid it with natural methods. Like for one thing, you wouldn't want to have an alfalfa field right next to your strawberry field. Uh, they, the, the alfalfa is a host for tarnished plant bugs and then when, as the season goes on, they say, oh, there's strawberries next door, too. Well, let's have some variety here. Why eat just alfalfa? And so, <laughs> yeah, let's go for the dessert. And so uh, that would be a bad combination. And we haven't had a huge problem with that. I think one year I, had, I counted as many as three on a blossom cluster. But up to now, I guess... You know, sometimes you can just, if you don't have very many, you just share a little bit, I guess. I will say that cold damage can deform berries as well. And so for somebody who's not really trained, they may see a disfigured berry and think it's tarnished plant bug when actually it's just cold damage. Mm -hmm in the early season. Okay, I think that brings us to the end of our challenges. One thing that's a challenge. Does anybody still wanna grow well, strawberries? One thing that's a challenge for us, and that is just, because uh, we have a U-pick operation, and uh, so as we get people coming to pick, some of them are just really terrible pickers. And as they go up and down the rows, uh, I have a few customers that come and they really just go five, every five feet and pick the very biggest berries in the field that they can find. And they come up. You can tell when they come to check out. I mean, they've got the most beautiful berries you ever saw. But they left most of them out in the field. And so you have to have people in the field monitoring that. And somebody's just going to have to pick that row over again. Or by the time, see, we try to pick every third, pick the whole field every three days. Well, so if you wait for the next three days to come, all the berries that were there that were ripe today are going to be getting towards rotten uh, by the time we pick that area again. So, uh, and I, I do have a challenge because we, we also pick berries for, for sale. And so I do have a challenge uh, 
finding workers to help me pick those berries. Some people are, I, I tend to hire young people to help us, and some of them are good pickers, some are used to working, and some aren't. <laughs> and uh, that's a bit of a challenge. So just the pickers are a bit of a challenge. But I don't want to leave it on just uh, challenges. I want to say that, you know, this year was a ch considered a challenging year with COVID, and you know, yet there's a blessing in it because I remember going to a class early on this spring and the, the class I attended uh, on how to deal with COVID was saying, only pick every six rows and then every night after everyone leaves, bleach the field. Well, I didn't stay for the rest of the class. And uh, so it could have been a very discouraging year and yet people had nothing else to do. They came to our farm uh, in record numbers. I think the most cars we had had at our farm uh, in another year for UPIC was 140 cars in one day. That's a lot for a little country road, gravel road out in the country. But we had, this year we had two days where we had 250 cars coming, probably an average of three people to car, 750 people on the farm and to get strawberries. And one of those days this is amazing. Growing, actually, it's about 2.7 acres. We had we had a $10,000 day selling strawberries, and so so I think you can make some money at it. There are challenges, and yet uh, if you you know with the diseases and things, if you watch your growing conditions, keep tabs on what's going on out in your field. Uh, you can, you can uh, overcome these things and have a good experience. And I think the better part of it is, too, that of those maybe 750 people, we have signs up on our farm, and, and my son is out praying with people in the fields, and you have opportunities to share Jesus with people when they come, and they're getting food that they can trust. They don't trust necessarily what they get in the store, but they're learning to trust you year by year, and uh, we pray with people regularly on the farm, and it's a blessing and an opportunity. So I don't want to just focus on the challenges, but I think we will answer some questions on the challenges. Okay, we've got about five minutes. We do give them a row, and I'll show it in my presentation, which is just going to be coming up here in a few minutes. I think John has to disconnect here, and we've got to trade computers. But uh, we give them a row to pick, and we, we really encourage them to pick all the right berries. And sometimes you get the little ones, the little nubbins that are like your little fingernail. You, nobody would want those. But I don't know really what you do. We don't. You know, we're pro-family. We like to have people come with children. Sure, they trample some berries, but that's just part of the part of the thing. And you know, you, you, it's hard to you encourage them to pick all the berries, but then they pick what they pick. <laughs> okay, another question in the back. So, how do you treat anthracnose on an organic farm? You know, anthracnose is an insidious enough disease that even conventional growers kind of shake in their boots over it. Um, and they've got a lot more powerful poisons, you know, than organic growers do. So basically, you know, if you detect an outbreak in your field, 
you know, what they recommend you doing is immediately pulling out that plant and all the others around it. So you can try to contain it. And, you, you know, you have to be really careful with washing your hands and everything. You know, don't, don't pick the plants when they're wet because that's only going to spread it. Um, so there are a few things you can do, but the bottom line is if, you know, usually by the time you see it in the field, it's too late to do anything about it. Right. So you need to be praying long before you ever see it. So prevention, you know, that's why, you know, early in the season, if you, you know, you can, there are uh, organic fungicides uh, that you can use. We, we spray maybe at the 10% blossom time or just before that, uh, the field. And that will, but then as the berries are on, we would never spray the strawberries. But, you know, that's, with an organic spray, you can, you can do things that would prevent it. But once you see it, it's too late. Yeah, yeah, that goes pretty much for any kind of organic sprays. You have to be thinking ahead. You have to be proactive. By the time you see a problem, it's really too late. Right, the spores, wind and rain. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, I think here and then here, and then we probably need to close. Well, that's a challenge. We we haven't you had need the problem. To kind of repeat the question. Oh, for thank you. Audio verse. Yeah, wondering about the spores uh, being from anthracnose infecting the field so that it's ruined for the future years too, and I guess it's gone by the moisture that we have in any particular year. But I. What we do is we pick for three years, so there could be some carryover, but I haven't seen it where we have one part of the field that's an anthracnose part of the field, and next year it is too. I just haven't seen that. What I have seen, there's a little bitty mite called cyclamen mite that tends to be in one part of the field, but they don't travel very far or very fast. And so they're mostly eating the leaves, new leaves. But... So I haven't seen it so much, and I guess that's why John's plowing his up every year. And we, we still pick for three years, but if after two years we see that the field is not doing very well, we would plow it up. And then we put in cover crop, because that's what we've seen is that when you put strawberries on strawberries on strawberries, eventually it, those diseases and those problems, bugs or whatever, are going to continue on and just continue to ruin things. So we have... Uh, between our three years of picking, we would have two years of cover crop so that the ground has something else and we're putting some nutrients back into it. So, and just to, to follow up on that, to my knowledge, anthracnose does not uh, linger in the soil, uh, but it can infect host plants, native host plants, so it will be in the environment around your field and then could reinfect it. And that's why we do an annual planting. Okay, one last question and then we need to... Oh.
Okay, he's saying regalia. My understanding with regalia is it's not so much a fungicide as a plant. Um, oh, what's the word they use? Yeah, I mean, it basically strengthens the plant too. So I haven't used it yet, but I'd like to try it. It's cheaper. Regalia is the organically approved. Um, yeah, I don't, do they call it a fungicide? I don't know. Anyway, okay, well, we need to stop. I just want to make one last comment, and then Barry's taking over from here. But, yeah, we've talked a lot about the challenges, but there's no easier crop to sell than strawberries, and you can get a good price for it. Um, so there's a lot of good things going for it. And even though by the end of the season, we're kind of like, oh, strawberries. But every spring... We're still, we can't wait to taste yeah. that first strawberry. So it is something, that, you know, well, we've been doing it for 23 years, so obviously we must think there's some good in it. Otherwise, we wouldn't keep doing it. So don't be discouraged. We'll take a break and meet back at 4 o'clock. Okay, 4 o'clock, we'll be covering the matted row growing system, a little more of a natural method than the plastic one. So uh, maybe more what you use in gardens, but uh, we'll talk more about that then. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.